Okay, we're on page two of our study um, on the atonement and salvation in the Bible. I'm going to review because, you know, we've had, what, two weeks since we met last? Or is it three? I think it's three weeks. And with that amount of time, you're not going to remember what we studied. And we got caught right in the middle of it with uh, needing to quit. So I think it's important then that we begin again with Leviticus 1.4. We actually began with, we were still on page one when we began last time. Uh, so this is not completely starting over. But we want to talk about the most important section of the Hebrew Bible dealing with atonement is Leviticus, of course, with the sacrifices that made atonement. And what does that mean, that they made atonement? And there's two ways that people have gone for interpreting the word for atonement, which, if you notice here, the first paragraph, towards the middle of the page, uh, by Leviticus 1.4, the word for atonement is kipper. In in 1.4, it is lakopper, which is simply the PL uh, infinitive form which doesn't mean anything to you, but in case somebody listens to this who has some scholarly <laughs> background, <laughs> that's for them. The word kipper, you, you've probably heard Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Okay, So it, the kipper is the word for atonement. Uh, Yom Kippur is simply the Day of Atonement. This word has been translated two ways. Scholars and lay people, I think, alike bring two different definitions to this word. One is expiation and the other is propitiation. We talked last time about the difference between those two, about propitiation versus expiation. Let me just briefly encapsulate the difference again. Propitiation is a very personal term. It's very subjective. It means appeasing someone who is offended by something I've done. So, to atone, to atone for one's misdeeds is to propitiate or appease or assuage the wrath of another person. That's how it's um, been understood. And, and the word atonement itself has tended to mean that to most people. It doesn't mean that to me, but it has tended to mean that to most people. You maybe have heard someone who's an older generation say, uh, let me atone for what I did. Okay, it's it's the idea. Let me make up for it. Let me let me do something to make you feel better. Let me let me. It's, it's again. It's very personal. It's very subjective. Now the irony of this is that scholars who apply that definition to the term think of it as subjective. I mean, it's objective, meaning that because we're not the ones involved. It's done outside of us. It's therefore objective. But it really isn't because it has to do with the subject of another person, namely God, in terms of atonement. So I'm just spreading this out. This is where scholars are. The other one, expiation, is a little harder to define. But expiation, to me, Oh, I, the, the scholarly definition is to satisfy guilt and take care of what is obstructing me from God. It almost has the nuance of purging 
or cleansing. But it is, it's really the means to that. No, I take that back. It is more the the result of cleansing and purging. Okay, is that you've taken care of, or you have satisfied the the problem of guilt and sin. I see it expiation as taking care of the problem that separates me from God. To me, that is what expiation does. What we're going to do here is look at evidence for expiation as preferred definition for kipper over against propitiation. So I'm going to read the first two paragraphs and then Tara will start with you. Um, and we're going to read through this whole, these two pages and probably onto the fourth page. And that will, that will help us then to discuss our, uh, where we stand on that. When you get ready to turn a page, whoever's reading, please pause so that all the paper noise can get taken care of. <coughs> that'll, that'll help the editor on the recording a lot. Okay. First paragraph, uh, Leviticus 1.4. The word for atonement is kipper, here la copper. Scholars have wrestled with this word. Is it built on the Arabic root kafar, meaning to cover? Or is it related to the D form of the Akkadian cognate kapuru, to wipe off, rub off, hence by extended meaning, to cleanse or remove? Most scholars lean toward the latter and view the atonement either as propitiatory or expiatory. A careful study shows that Kipper does not, in Leviticus, refer to propitiation. Two examples of where Kipper does mean to propitiate are Genesis 32, 20, and 21, where Jacob sends multiple gifts to his brother Esau with the thought, maybe I can wipe away the anger off his face with a gift that goes before my face so that afterward I may see his face, and perhaps he will lift up my face. And two, Proverbs 16:14, The king's wrath is a messenger of death, and the wise pe- person will wipe it off. In both cases, the PL form of the verb is used, just as it is in Leviticus. However, in Leviticus, neither God nor divine anger is ever the direct object of the verb kipper, whereas it clearly does in two examples cited. For the verb to mean appease, it seems that some references should be made to God or his anger. No such object is found in its usages in Leviticus. Rather, the expression here in one four is to make atonement on his behalf. Okay, let me correct something here. Um, I see we have the old version before I, I made some corrections. It can mean appease in an intransitive sense. That is where there's no object at all. So you want to keep that in mind, just in fairness to the text. But it has to do, it isn't so much, it has to do with the kind of object that follows it as to what it means. If it's a direct object of wrath or face or presumably a person, though we don't have an example of that in the Hebrew Bible, uh, it would mean propitiate. But if there's a different kind of object that follows that verb, it means something different, and it has more the connotation of expiation. So I just wanted to clarify that. Okay, Christina. Yitzhak Federer has carefully analyzed the concept of atonement in Hittite and Israelite traditions. 
Going further, he has explored what happened to these concepts in the LXX and Vulgate translations. What follows are excerpts and recapitulations of his work. Okay, just pause. Uh, LXX is, represents the Greek Septuagint, uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with that term. As argued above, the roots of the Hittite and biblical notions of expiation can be found in the context of blood guilt and retribution, whereas the earliest phase of this belief seems to relate to the belief that the blood of the murdered person bearing his vital spirit screams out for vengeance from the gods. The latter conception, described in both the Hittite and biblical evidence, depicts blood guilt as a stain that activates a mechanical process of retribution. This mechanical notion was described above as representing a transition from the idea of propitiating the blood, the victim's kin, the gods, to expiating the guilt. Okay, let's pause. You remember we talked about the story of Cain and Abel? As, as kind of the initial story that we need to, to understand that in order to understand where God stands on this issue of blood and blood vengeance and propitiation and so on. And you may remember that I pointed out to you that avenging oneself or taking revenge or retaliation is the flip side of the same coin as appeasement. Because a person who avenges themselves, appease themselves. A person who is avenged by someone else is appeased. So what is it that cries out for vengeance in the Cain and Abel story? It isn't God. It's the blood and possibly the ground. So if it's the ground, then it's the people who cry out for vengeance. And and you can draw that out. I mean, if you study uh, ancient history, almost any culture, you have tribal blood feuds uh, in which you kill a member of my tribe, I will kill a member of your tribe, and, and so on. And God puts a mark on Cain to protect him from that. So that's, that's what I call the, the minor voice of God's preferred will, uh, the voice that that is usually less heard, softer, uh, milder, but it is his initial response to violence. The other thing I want you to notice is his talking about this mechanical process of retribution. What do you think he means by that? Maybe a, um, like there's a, weren't there accepted cultural ways of going out about getting revenge or something? Possibly. What does the word mechanical mean? When we talk about a mechanism, we could be talking about something that, that society has has established as a means of getting retaliation. But um, I think what he means, having read the whole book by Fetter, I think what he means is that there's almost... Uh, an inherent process between sin and its consequences and its retaliation, its retribution. It's almost built into the system. It's a mechanical thing uh, rather than a personal thing. He's using mechanical here as opposed to personal. 
Uh, and that will become clear as we move along. So why don't we go ahead, Robert? Whereas expressions with Kipper in the sense of propitiation are generally characterized by the lack of the direct object. Example, Second Samuel 21, verse 3. Or a term for anger as the direct object. Genesis 32, verse 21. Proverbs 16, verse 14. It is, uh, its use in the sense of expiation feature blood or sin as a direct object. As a result, the focus was transferred from appeasing the offended parties to addressing the wrong committed and removing guilt. The latter use of kipper, translated as expiate, implies a mechanical dynamic of retribution in which sin automatically yields adverse consequences unless some restrictory act is performed. It always helps to read on, doesn't it? So he's, he's saying the focus was transferred from appeasing the offended parties to addressing the wrong committed and removing guilt. And then he says it implies a mechanical dynamic of retribution in which sin automatically yields adverse consequences unless some restitutory act is performed. So it's automatic. It's, it, he doesn't use things like natural consequences or inherent consequences, but I think he's approaching the same idea. And the reason he doesn't use those, those are modern terms, those are modern ideas. Um, this is a little more close to uh, a more primitive understanding of what we call natural law. You want to read uh, the next paragraph, please? Interestingly, the strategy employed by the Bible in adapting the usages of Kippur served as a model for its Greek translators. Throughout the LXX, the Hebrew term is served as a model for its Greek translators. Whoa. <laughs> Translated consistently by derivatives of hileskamai, propitiate, appease, particularly the intensive form exiliskamai. These terms were already used in ancient Greek before the Septuagint in the sense of propitiating the, an angry deity. However, as recognized by numerous scholars, the LXX departs from earlier usage. In order to translate Kippur, the Greek translators used an unconventional syntax for the term whose conventional sense was propitiate, yielding the sense expiate. Surprisingly, nearly all scholars have failed to recognize that a similar semantic transition from propitiation to expiation had already taken place in the Hebrew Kippur. Okay, I want to unpack this because this is a little bit heavy (laughs) right here. And what he's saying is that in early Greek, the word halaskamai, which uh, is the translation of Kippur, and exhalaskamai were used to mean propitiation, to propitiate the gods, propitiate the wrath of the gods. What he's saying here is that the Greek Septuagint translators shifted from using that way of expressing it to meaning expiation. And the way they did that was to render it uh, with a different kind of object. And what he doesn't suggest here is something I'm going to suggest. He, he mentions that this, this, uh, this unconventional syntax was used in the Hebrew Bible already. And that's true. The object of Kippur is never God. It is never his wrath. It is never his face. 
Never in anywhere, any text, where kippur is used to mean atonement in the religious, cultic sense, ritual sense. It never has God as the object or God's wrath or his face. Instead, it has a prepositional object, which is in Hebrew uh, literally al-katah, which means uh, because of sin or for sin or literally upon sin. Sin is the prepositional object of this verb, not anything divine. And that's what makes it mean expiation as opposed to propitiation. It's too bad you, I can't just open up your brains and just pour in the ability to understand Hebrew. <laughs> it would be much, much clearer to you. But, but that is how it is. And all the Septuagint translators did was translate that unconventional syntax and it became just as unconventional in Greek as it did in, in Hebrew. They simply did a literal translation. I believe they used epiharmateus, something like that. I haven't, I haven't looked this up, so, at least recently. But that is, and, and it's conventional in both lang- unconventional in both languages. So they made the syntax deliberately awkward to stay away from propitiation. That's, that's key to understanding. Okay, uh, Glow, you want to read? He notes that in several ways, the Latin translation of the Bible provides the anecdote, uh, antecedents. antecedents to the latter English translations and the theological ideas associated with it. The Latin language provides us with the origin of propitiate in propitio and the origin of expiate in expio. But the Latin Vulgate usually uses expio for kippo or hite, where the situation involves purify, purifying people or whatever has to do with holy things. But when approaching contexts where there is a failure of relationship between human beings and God, the Vulgate approaches language of appeasement. This distinction, apparently influenced by early Christian theology, served as a model for later translations. Okay, so we owe our view of this word as propitiatory to the Latin Vulgate. And that shows you that there's an early shift in Christianity. Uh, Latin Vulgate goes back to Jerome, <clears throat> who is in the 4th century, uh, 300s. That's when there's a decided shift taking place in Christian theology away from the ransom theory and more towards uh, an appeasement type of model. And you have actually already in the 3rd century uh Tertullian, an early church father who is the father of Latin theology. Uh, and Latin theology was heavily laced with legal and more uh, retributive uh, appeasement sorts of ideas. So I don't know that Tertullian went that direction. Him, Yes, I believe he did. I believe he did go the direction more of appeasement. So so that's the background behind this. This is the sh- where the shift took place. It didn't take place in the Hebrew Bible. It didn't take place in the, in the Greek Septuagint. It already it took place in the sec in the third and fourth centuries, A.D. He goes on to point out the reticence of English translators to use expiate in similar terms, 
instead using personalized language such as reconciliation or atonement. However, in the 20th century, some translators began to use expiate and expiation for only a handful of occurrences of Kippur, all of which seemed to depict an automatic, automatic process of satisfying guilt. These observations are by no means trivial. They show that at least some modern English translators have preserved the tradition of the Vulgate, whereby the terminology of expiation was reserved for an automatic process of satisfying guilt, to be distinguished from the notions of atonement and forgiveness, which pertain to a personalized conception of the relations, relations between humans and God. And I'd like to point out that this whole discussion underlies very strongly the New Testament understanding. Because the New Testament theology of atonement in, in Romans is built on the Septuagint, which, of course, is built on the Hebrew Bible. So it's more expiatory than it is. And, and again, the, the scholarly notice of this first began with the New Testament. So they noticed that this really meant expiation because of the way it's constructed. But, of course, what Fader is trying to point out is that it goes back all the way to the Hebrew Bible. Um, so we're going to notice that when we come to Romans, how Paul uses this. In its original form, the blood rite seems to reflect a self-contained dynamic, an automatic process to remove transgression and avoid its consequences. In contrast, the Vulgate shows a tendency to interpret cultic Kipper formulas within the framework of personalized religion. According to this conception, ritual efficiency. <laughs> depends on the ability of the petitioner to sway the will of God. In his summary, he makes similar statements. Accordingly, the semantic tra transition of Kipper der derivatives corresponds to a more fundamental conceptual transition from the notion of propitiation to that of expiation, whereas sick, the former, the former consists of placating the anger of the offended party. The latter pertains to undoing the ill effects of the wrong committed. The latter depiction seems to involve a more mechanistic, depersonalized conception in which blood guilt automatically brings retribution unless it is properly addressed by the perpetrator and community. Okay. Um, let's pause. Are there any questions? This, this is an extremely crucial uh, concept to nail down. So if there's anything not clear or any question you have, I would appreciate. I don't know. I kind of, it's, the question is forming, but I'm not sure. I don't know. Maybe later on I might get the answer or be able to form it a little better. Okay. Uh, just about sin, sin as um, being the object well, the, the the expiation is made because of sin, or or on, on behalf of sin, or for sin. It's to deal with sin. the The concept there is is whatever Kipper means. It means it's going to deal with sin in such a way as to completely al allow the process to be resolved, the problem to be removed. And, and I will say, there is a, a situation, I mean, here, where you are viewing, viewing us and God. Uh, it's not totally depersonalized. But the problem isn't God and his wrath and his anger. 
The problem is this sin that's between us and God, and that sin has to be dealt with appropriately and removed in order for us to come into the presence of God. So Satan is responsible for sin, right? Mm-hmm. And so would we be having some sort of uh, retribution for or atonement for like uh, Satan, like to appease Satan? No, there's no, no appeasement. I'm, I'm just, there's I'm no appeasement. Just just leave appeasement out of the the whole construct. See, this is this is the problem that we have been so steeped in this Latin tradition that we have a hard time conceiving that you can actually just not have that at all in the picture. And when when we get to the New Testament, just to give you a window of where we're headed, when we get to the New Testament, Paul doesn't even use this word, I believe, in this way. Um, he talks about the hilasterion, which is the actually the term in the Septuagint for the mercy seat or the the cover of the uh, Ark of the Covenant, uh, the place where at one month takes place where where the sin problem is dealt with completely effectively. But when he uses a personalized term for salvation, it is katalage, which means reconciliation, and he, and he never uses it of God. He only uses it of us. We are the ones reconciled to God. So Paul, in Paul's theology, we are the ones hostile. And, and, and you, can, you can draw this same thing from Jesus in the parable of the prodigal son. Uh, who's the one hostile in the story? The son that runs away and the son that stays home. They're both hostile. And in fact, uh, in a wonderful theological transitory device, Jesus uses the word intercede when the father goes out to the older brother to intercede with him to come in the house. So who's being interceded with? It's not God. It's interesting because the father's the offended party, right? Yeah, he is terribly offended because when the when the younger brother uh, decides to take off with the inheritance, he's wishing the father dead. When he goes and says, "Give me my inheritance," he's basically saying, "I wish you were dead," and that's that's the most disrespectful he could be in a Jewish household in that day. So he's highly offended his father. He's disgraced him before the whole community. It's a huge, huge thing. Okay, now is where we want to transition to the Bible and go to Leviticus 5. I'm sorry, Leviticus 1.5. This is still talking about the burnt offering. Let's start with verse 4, actually. You must press your hand on the head of the entirely burned offering so that it will be acceptable to you for you to make reconciliation for you. My version wants propitiation in there. Then you will slaughter the bull before the Lord. Who does the slaying of the animal? The person who presses the hand on the head. And who is it that presses his hand on the head? An Israelite. An Israelite. Now, now here it's actually... Um, yeah, it's an Israelite. 
It's an Israelite who needs atonement, right? Which means it's an Israelite who has sinned. So it is the sinner, the offerer, who slays the animal, not the priest. Now, just for clarification, the Septuagint puts this in a very passive form. And it says, actually, no, not passive, plural form. They shall slay the animal, is how it's translated in the Septuagint. And I think the reason they translated it that way, and they do it consistently throughout Leviticus, everywhere this is said, they shall slay the animal. And I think the reason they do that is because you take a bull, one person alone can't slay that animal. (laughs) It would take several people doing it, right? Uh, Someone to hold the animal, people to hold the animal, someone to, to slice the juggler vein, and someone to catch the blood, which would be, the priest would be the one to catch the blood. So, so you have several, several people involved. But in the Hebrew Masoretic text, it's very clear that the sinner is the one who is responsible for the death of that animal. And that's extremely important to understanding atonement. Why? If the priest slew the animal, what would it suggest? Is it like someone getting revenge, kind of, by someone else's atoning for the wrong you did versus the the israelite atoning yeah i think i think it would it, it let's change the revenge to appeasement the priest is making appeasement it it would seem to convey the concept of appeasement to me but typologically I think we're dealing with something even more significant. If we if we look at this typologically as reflecting uh, the death of Jesus, if the priest is the one who slaughters that animal, the priest would have to represent either represent the people or he would have to represent God. He plays a dual role, right? He represents both the people and God. But, of course, which one he represents it depends on which function he, he performs. And so I, I think that what Leviticus, the way the Masoretic text reads, and that's the Hebrew Bible, conveys the concept that sin is what is responsible for the death of that animal. My sin leads to the death of that animal. My sin leads to death. Not God. If the priest did it, the water's muddy now. Is it God killing this animal? And then that would lead to the question, does God kill his son? And we talked about that in connection with Genesis 22 and the story of the binding of Isaac. I think that if we're to look at atonement as expiation and taking care of the problem, um, it has to be personal, like you were suggesting. So the person slaughtering the animal... There's no question in their mind that um, that they are personally involved in that death versus... Because um, I was trying to make that, that concept from the sacrifice, connecting a sacrifice, and how would that take care of the problem of sin? Yeah, yeah, how, how would that? How, how would shedding the blood of an animal do that? And I think, I think it goes back to Genesis 9, 6, where... Uh, I will require the blood of every blood shed by every human being and by every animal. Um, God saying, 
what he's saying is shedding blood leads to shedding blood. And and we have that testimonial right in the flood story. The earth becomes filled with violence after the after Cain slays his brother Abel, Lamech slays someone from wounding him, and then you have this whole escalation of violence uh, leading up to the flood. So it seems to me that what that what removes the sin problem here is the recognition that sin leads to death. And it isn't just bloodshed sin, it's any sin, because any sin leads to other sins which lead to other sins. I mean, there's a trajectory of sin that takes place and kind of a domino effect. Uh, This will get clearer as we move along. Let's go to Leviticus 115. We don't have to look that up. This is a case of a sacrificial bird. The priest did both the wringing off of the head and the draining of the blood. So this is confusing. Why would the priest have to do this? I think it's a practical problem. You can't cut a bird's head off and manage a bird, especially a large bird. Do you, does anybody know why? Anybody here ever had to deal with chickens? If you slaughter, if you cut a, a chicken's head off, they'll just run around the yard with their head until their blood all drains out and then they're dead. It, it's just impossible to manage a bird if you cut off its head. It would be very awkward for one person to be cutting off the head, the other person draining the blood. It's just easier to wring the head and, and get the blood out um, for one person. The sin offering required blood manipulation on, on, on Leviticus 4 now by the priest who brought the blood into the first compartment of the sanctuary and sprinkled it seven times before the Lord in front of the curtain separating the compartment from the most holy place. Only the Hittites outside of Israel did blood manipulations with their sacrifices. This is therefore fairly unique to the Hebrew Bible leading to the question, why did God make so much of the use of blood? We're going to have a whole handout on that. And some of you, most of you have seen this handout before, but just because uh, people listening online haven't, and some some of you in honors haven't, um, we'll bring it here uh, next time, and we'll, we'll pause a while to really focus on the blood. Just a quick perception toward that. The blood is the life, and the life is in the blood, according to Leviticus 17.11. God has given it to us for atonement, and then that raises the question, why did God choose blood to symbolize this? So let's, let's move to the partial summary. Then we'll pause for the handout, and then we'll move on. Two points need clarification before we f- proceed further. In Exodus 34, 6, and 7, we saw that God is a forgiving God. Forgiveness is part of his character, indicated by the participle form, one who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. For this reason, God's forgiveness cannot be bought, earned, or gained by appeasement or any other means. It is freely given in response to expressed desires for it, such as repentance confession. In Leviticus 17.11, 
where eating the blood is prohibited, God states, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you for making atonement for your lives on the altar. For as life, it is the blood that makes atonement. Note that God gives the means for making atonement. This is very suggestive typologically of the fact that God ultimately gives his own blood for atonement. Therefore, it is God who effects atonement, not us. Appeasement for that reason is not possible. Unless you believe, like John Stott, that God appeased himself in Christ. And that would have to mean he avenged himself. But I cannot imagine how a being, any being, could avenge themselves by slaughtering their son. I just, I, I do not grasp how that could literally, actually work uh, to appease them. It seemed to me that the very act of having to kill their son would require more appeasement because now I need appeasement and avengement because I had to kill my son. Look at what I had to do. Uh, I, I do not see that working at all. So if God is the one who forgives, appeasement is not necessary and it's not possible. You can't appease someone who's already forgiven you. And Jesus made that very clear as he died on the cross. And he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. This is the heart of God. This is what God does when uh, giving his life for us. And he forgives his enemies. And no one appeased him to do that. Any questions? Maybe we'll start that handout. And and I'll just do it as a backup. Well, it is okay. I think it is time to quit. <laughs> uh, so let's bow our heads for prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you that you are truly gracious. That we don't have to manipulate anything or do anything to make you that way. That you are who you are, as you said your name is. And that means that you, because you are who you are, we don't, ha- we don't make you someone else. And no one else makes you differently than who you are. We thank you for this. We pray that we may be able to carry this truth with us as we continue our study of the atonement and salvation of the Bible. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.